Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Pat. Well, here we are, another morning. Um, wanted to talk today about, uh, just pick your brain a little bit about starting businesses and how that relates to your ambidextrous organizations and, and kind of the infrastructure for putting that in place. Uh, you and I chatted earlier this week and know some some friends that are kind of in that in that frame of mind trying to they're considering starting a business and I think often when we talk about ambidextrous organizations and that infrastructure it's in the context of existing businesses you know established businesses that uh, it could be it could be helpful for them to, to bring that infrastructure into their business but if you're to start from scratch and really want to establish that foundation moving forward you know, I'm curious what advice you would have for someone in that position Mm-hmm. Whew. Do you always ask such good questions so early in the morning? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't always ask such good questions. <laughs> good. Uh, first, the idea of ambidextrous organizations is not original with me. Um, so you could Google a Harvard Business Review article by two professors, I think out of uh, University of Southern California Business School, the ambidextrous organization. And uh, so they will, they would break up the hemispheres, not break them up, but they would uh, assign to the, each hemisphere, to the right hemisphere is what explores opportunities um, or ways to do business in the right hemisphere, uh, exploits existing opportunities and so on and so forth. So it's a helpful, uh, I thought it was a helpful article in a number of ways. What I've often found uh, is uh, they didn't go into any sort of detail as to how you actually would popularize that model, that is make it accessible for the uh, average person starting a business and how you'd work that out, which is not, which is not unusual because that's not really the province of, a, of an academician. They wanna lay out the model, but the working out of the model, uh, if you were to Google, apparently there are, are quite a number of organizations or a handful, I'm not really sure of the number, that are trying to become ambidextrous organizations. Um, but it's very small. Uh, and, you know, in a way, almost to be expected, only no more than 1% of any given population are, uh, has uh, people who are physically uh, ambidextrous. Um, I don't think you are. I don't think, I know I'm not. We bias one hemisphere over the other. And that's the important word there. You, we bias a hemisphere. We don't wake up and say, I'm going to be right-handed today. Sure. So once you have that in place, you understand that um, there are very few ambidextrous organizations, and they're not generally not givens. Um, you have to work at them. So once we once we, once we have that set out, um, that's what we've tried to do over the last be twelve years now of trying to actually lay out a model for how you would start such an enterprise 
a lot of it based on the research of Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, and Ian McGilchrist's work. Um, and it's a book that we wrote that fits C.S. Lewis model. He said, we don't need little more little books on Christianity. We need little more little books on things we do every day that's informed by Christianity. And I think he wanted books that sort of get past the watchful dragon. So that's the gist of that book. So um, you could read that. It always sounds funny for the author to say, read my book. Hmm. Uh, but you could. The other thing then, um, I would I would urge people to perhaps also read uh, Dennis Bakke's Joy at Work. I'm going to say it for this one reason. This is sort of the path we'll go down. In a talk that uh, Bakke gave probably 30 years ago now, he said we started his firm, which was AES. It was at one time the world's largest energy distribution company and um, privately held for a long time, then became public. So you can Google AES and still find it today. He's no longer associated with the company, but he and um, his friend Ray uh, started the company. And they said, this is what they said. They said, we started the company to sort of upend 19th century ideas about human beings. Yeah, so that, I mean, that alone is, is fascinating. And that landed them in energy, is what you're saying. That's right. So what's going on there, Pat? This has something to do with ambidextrous, by the way. What, the, the 19th century? Yeah. And, you know, what, why, not? why pick that century out? Uh, why say 19th century notions about human nature, human beings? Yeah, I, I would guess that has to do with the Industrial Revolution and this idea of you know, humans as machines. Yes. And so that right there is a way of saying what uh, we wrote about called widen the lens. And it's the right hemisphere, which uh, people who bias their right are good at widening the lens to take more into account than let's start an energy company. Instead, they said, let's start a, let's start a company because we have some background in energy, let's start a company that um, actually is more aligned with an accurate assessment of human nature. Now, what would be the benefit of that? <laughs> well, lots of benefit, I would guess. One being just the uh, benefit of conscience. And, and doing what you believe to be good, but another one, you know, if, if that's actually aligned with human nature, you would expect that it would it would flourish, it would do do pretty well. Maybe, maybe not. What's the title of Dennis's book? Joy at Work. No, why that title? That's one of the benefits is to have joy at work. <laughs> <laughs> it might be the benefit. How many people go to work, wake up uh, this morning and go, I love what I do. I really, yeah. I really I, enjoy it. I would guess not that many. Yeah, I don't, let's just say it's certainly less than 50%. That's, if you were to start something, an entity, a business, that want to be ambidextrous, 
unless you're part of what McGilchrist would say, uh, the 5% of the population who biases their left hemisphere. And by the way, if you've done a self-assessment, for example, you say, well, I'm, I'm uh, left-handed, so therefore I bias the right hemisphere. Then you probably are, don't bias your right hemisphere. Well, I'm an artist, so I must bias my right hemisphere. If you, that's all the further you've gone, you probably don't. Those who bias the right hemisphere don't rely on self-assessments. They, uh, to take the title of a book from a professor at the University of Virginia, those who bias the right hemisphere recognize we are strangers to ourselves. And uh, a very biblical notion, I think. And so what they've done, they've got, they actually done outside assessments, brought in outsider views, and they give assessments to them to indicate whether or not they bias the right or left hemisphere. We know from those sorts of assessments that are known, which are often, for example, could be drawing exercises, 95% uh, of the population in the Western world biases the left hemisphere. So they are going to naturally without being conscious of it, not being, be, they're not capable of widening the lens and actually building an ambidextrous organization. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't, uh, as one friend loves to say, crush it in terms of being a fun place to work, uh, make a lot of money, be sure. very profitable, and make uh, contributions that are uh, uh, helpful to society. You'll also see these companies uh, generally, for example, have exit strategies, which I think is telling. You imagine getting married, you and Maddie getting married, and, but you also had an exit strategy. Hmm. That's because you're often, you're thinking, we're probably not going to take a lot of joy in this in the long run. Prenups are exit strategies. So we, we really can't guarantee we're, <clears throat> we're going to enjoy this for the long run. That's that perhaps. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just interesting thought about business relating that to business as an exit strategy. Well, I, I uh, you know, we've talked about this before, but uh, I don't think I can say it enough. Before the industrial revolution, the home and work, I mean, the home was the basic economic engine. Work and family were not really that divided. And the portal into the gospel has always been your body and a marriage primarily and so if you take you say well i'm talking here about business i'm not talking about a marriage i'm not talking about well you're already doomed because you know we've joked about this before but i go into sometimes in the company and say it's fascinating now do you have a value statement at home on the wall you and your family <laughs> we never do that well then why are you doing it here hmm. See, we have set up a situation where we have two we have two different views of human nature, as you alluded to. Hmm. And you can't build an ambidextrous organization if you unconsciously, that's the key word, unconsciously just step into the same pattern that everyone else steps into to start, which is write a vision statement. Hmm. You never start there. Well, you do if you bias the left hemisphere. And then you go to exorbitant lengths to wordsmith that thing. And it usually uh, 
So it's cobbled together by committee. I've gone to some businesses and churches where they, that vision statement is so lengthy. I could never remember it. Can you imagine one day someone comes over and says, hey, how are you and Manny be doing? I mean, it doesn't seem like you really remember your vision statement. <laughs> you say, oh, yeah, yeah, that thing, that big old thing we cobbled together a long time ago. I can't even remember it. So is that is that critique on the idea of a vision for a company or even even a vision mm -hmm. for a marriage? Or is mm -hmm. that is it purely on the critique on writing out a vision statement? Like well, I, one yeah. could say to picture what's your vision, the actual what, what what do you have a vision for? What do you see when it comes to this company? If that were a picture, which I think is more the spirit of the vision, that that sounds more right brained to me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's moving more toward a bias. And so here's the difference. So whenever I've done helped startups, the first thing we do there, we give them a big pad of, and a drawing pen. And we say, uh, so tell me why we're doing this, this company. Go off in another room. So I did this once. I, the first time I did it was with, it was, uh, let me see, it was 15. So they all came back. And then they, uh, those tear-off pads, those big old post-it pads, you've seen it before. And they put their drawings on the wall. And what was the first thing? This has happened, and by the way, in every situation I've done. It was the first thing they noticed with all these pictures. Their this, drawings, rather. This, this is for a single organization? Yeah. And with all the pictures, I would guess they're all different. They're all very different. So then we just had some fun. And I like the guy from Boston, for example, said, well, why the hell did you draw that thing, Bertie? And, uh, <laughs> and what they're saying is, that's not the business we're in. Oh, yes, that is a business room. See, they all have the same wordsmith, highest quality care in the professional service. But that's not the, uh, what people who are in the medieval world, like Lewis, C.S. Lewis would say, that's not the picture in their mind. That word, because you never ask them to draw that picture, uh, happy marriage. Let's just say you decide there's our vision statement. You know, it stands to reason the average couple, if they get married, say they're 29, they get married, they have 58 years of experiences and how they imagine happy. Mm. And it's, it's a long shot to imagine at age at 58 years, they pulled all those together. They had the very same picture. Hmm. I think we've said this before, but our first New Year's Day for Kathy and I married 41 years ago. We were in traveling. We were in uh, Memphis. I was staying at a friend's house. He wasn't there. And, you know, come three in the afternoon, Kathy Powell tells it better than I do. But uh, I look over and my new, my bride is crying. And she goes, I said, what's the matter, babe? I haven't moved off the couch all day watching football games, <laughs> eating wings. Goes, living the dream. Living the dream, man. I tell you, I always say, God invented couches, cable, and something else. And I said, what's the matter, babe? She goes, this is not New Year's Day. And I said, this is New Year's Day. She goes, this is not New Year's Day. <laughs> now, did you catch that? Our words were identical. Yeah. So for an ambidextrous organization, I think the first thing out of the box, if you really truly want to be ambidextrous, you start with a... You, 
I love our Max Dupripa, the first responsibility of a leader is to, is to define reality. Almost every organization that I've helped or business that I've helped launch is populated by people who bias the left hemisphere. If they don't bring in the outside view, like Pixar talks about or Disney talks about, those who bias the right hemisphere, they will generally start right out with a vision statement and wordsmith it to death. There's nothing wrong with vision. As Romans tells us, Book of Romans, the moment you put it to stone or to writing, it begins to die. The letter kills. The spirit is life. The spirit, in this case, is how do we imagine those words? Hmm. Would you say you know, your first recommendation then is to find find the outsiders? That's what you're saying? Yeah. Someone yeah. who can what's called facilitate a, uh, if you're going to become an ambidextrous organization, then you have to use an ambidextrous planning process. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you that's all. It's that simple. Yep, yep. And so for Pixar, it was bringing in outsiders when they began to make films. And uh, their belief is insiders see about 40%, outsiders about 60% of a story. So when you start a story, um, if you think you know how it's going to end up, you have the, the those who bias the right hemisphere. Miguel Chris says, are uh, amongst other things. Uh, Kahneman says the same thing. They're crap detectors. So a crap detector can say, "What? What? Hold the phone. What does that phrase mean right there?" Mm. Now the difficulty, Pat, and then I'll be quiet for a moment. Again, if you try to re- define words by defining words or clarify what you mean by words by using words. McGilchrist says you go deeper into the bowels of the left hemisphere. The pictures are key. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And only the right hemisphere understands metaphor. Pictures. Images. So as, as someone who's interested in starting a business... <clears throat> Looking for that outsider is really important. It sounds like that's that's what I'm getting from you. What what are you typically looking for? Or, or maybe another way to phrase that is, you know, for you, Mike, what do you typically walk through with some of these, uh, whether the startups or, or yeah, um, yeah, like what would you walk through? What should someone be looking for if they are considering an outsider? Or mm-hmm. um, yeah, we'll go there. So what's, yeah, what would you what would you be? What types of things would you be doing that um, would be helpful. Well, first of all, they are difficult to find outside because uh, most of the uh, consultants out there, we use the standard, you know, vision statement and then right. values and uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, actually, I think it's bass backwards. Uh, the last thing you write is a vision statement. Hmm. Um, so let's just pretend, you know, we're, uh, it was uh, Dennis Bakke and Roger Van Sant were the two that started AES many, many, many years ago. Now, Baki in the book says, uh, uh, Van Sant, who he, I think he called them, they're good friends, he called them the lapsed Mormon. Um, so in other words, Roger was willing to go for the ride, whichever direction Dennis wanted to go. Hmm. I think Dennis must have you know, shared 
you know, fundamentally, if you could make, if you, if someone plunked 10 million these days, it's important to say without you know, tax-free <laughs> here in Maryland, you'd lose a lot of that $10 million, an appalling amount, I must say. Uh, they say, you know, the average person gets 10 million bucks. What are they, are they going to go to work the next day? A surprising, a surprising amount. Of, yeah, I must say surprising amount, but actually a, a, an appalling number of people, percentage of people would say, no, I'm quitting. And now you go back to the garden and God created us to work it. In fact, even the Hebrew word there in Genesis is the business of God is business. That's crazy. And uh, now I know we're in a fallen world, but man, what a fall. Yeah. So I think that uh, what Baki was good as to say, you know, in the 19th century, there were some notions about who, what is a human, who is a human being? And Roger, I, we can't have the kind of organization or joy at work if we just unconsciously absorb those paradigms, those frames, and then try to start something that would be joyful. It won't work. And so I think out of that, they came away that the, the, they said, we're going to start with this assumption, these three, three assumptions that people are creative. It's because they're meeting the image of the creator, but they don't say that, but they just said creative, um, intelligent and uh what was the third one i think it was responsible but uh all three come straight out of genesis they're translated into the vernacular of uh, the business world but uh, if you read the book it then it's, you know, what comes out of that is a remarkable company because they said that we have to upend all sorts of notions chief of which is that people have to be managed so i actually now to think about it if you want to start it a business, I would recommend the management myth. Why the experts keep getting it wrong. Matthew Stewart, the management myth. It's a hoot to read. He is funny, but uh, he gets at uh, the whole notion of people have to be managed. It uh, it soaks the joy right out of it out of work so i guess again what i'm saying is um here, here'd be a good example while we're on the topic so if you had an outsider who was actually like uh, you, you know for the inklings uh, they looked to merlin believe it or not they felt king arthur's round table was the picture of uh not only life, but leadership, but organizations and the rest. And um, and Merlin was sort of the wise sage, which is, uh, again, fascinating because those four offices in the round table align with the uh, uh, two on each side with the functions of the hemisphere. And all four of those offices in the, in the round table align with the four offices of Jesus. And so you've got You've got an overlay here of something that would, I think, would suggest to a um, someone wanting to start an ambidextrous organization, especially if you're Christian, hmm, so the infrastructure might actually be there. It's just not evident. We have to uncover it. 
And one of the ways that there would be that, uh, uh, someone who biases the right would really help, I think, those who bias the left is they would upend the notion of when people say, yeah, I just don't see how it's practical. That's a dead giveaway. You bias the left hemisphere and you'll never build an ambidextrous organization. Why? Um, I think when, when, when practical isn't, isn't it, uh, the right hemisphere is in touch with the external experiences. And so the left is the responsibility of the left is to actually take things and make them practical. It's to interpret those signals and do something about it. Yeah. And I'll take it back to a marriage again. If you take it back to a happy marriage, a joyful marriage, think of how inane this sounds. Someone says, uh, uh, say a husband's talking to a friend saying, you know, my wife and I are just struggling a little bit. And um, friend says, well, when was the last time you took your wife on a date or brought her roses? And he goes, how's that practical? Right, right. Looking for like to what end type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Dead giveaway. Dead giveaway. What um, Lewis and actually uh, C.S. Lewis I'm talking about and, and others would say is, those in the left who bias the left can't see through these issues to their import. And so the most common phrase I hear from those who bias the left hemisphere is, how's that practical? Sure. And I think, my God, how is it not? You gotta be kidding me. What kind of marriage do you have? You only take roses home and your, your key is to get your wife in bed because that's practical. That's not a joyful marriage. Sure, sure. So it treats everything as an instrument. And so what Bob Key and those guys are doing at AES, humans more often than not are treated as instruments. And uh, so what COVID is somewhat upended. I mean, the jury's out on where this all it ultimately fleshes out, but it certainly has instigated a couple of things or uncovered a couple of things is the large number of people who don't enjoy working in an office and feel they're more productive and feel more wholesome when they just stop work for 15 minutes and drive the kid to soccer practice and watch him then drive home and go, God, that feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't do that when I used to commute an hour. God, that feels good. Or we see this whole thing of quiet quitting. Now, quiet quitting, as best as I can see it, doesn't seem to be a particularly long-haul view of how you're going to uh, make ends meet. But I think when people get a taste of something, but they don't know how to get there because there aren't ambidextrous organizations out there, but they just find... I don't know what exactly I want to do, but it sure as hell ain't what I'm doing now. So you mentioned uh, reading, reading these books would be helpful. Um, you, you said when you work with uh, startups and, and younger businesses, you, you actually mentioned your recommendation would be to do the vision statement last. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that come before that? You know, yeah, so good. You, so you sit down with someone and what is that? Yep. What does that outside inside relationship look like for you? That's right. Good question. 
So uh, an ambidextrous strategic plan, planning process would look the same as the way your brain works ambidextrously. And by that, I mean, it's a back and forth, in and out, reciprocating, um, reverberative process between the hemispheres. So all that to say, picture drawing pushes the bias over or the consciousness over to the right hemisphere. By the way, Pat, this is interesting. Um, the in most organizations where they do this picture drawing, when we come back and they look at say the 18, I'll take you back to the first time I did this. And um, so what we do is we begin to pick apart the pictures. See, that's a, we're now in the biasing in the left hemisphere, which is fine. See, so it goes back and forth. Now, a lot of that is to say that, that ain't it, or someone goes, that's a that is actually an org chart you do. That's not a he asked for a picture. That's mm -hmm. a diagram. So what we do is start tearing them down and we say, okay, we like that element here, here, and then we they go back and draw. And you try to get them to come up with a drawing that they all share. They go, that's the image. So see, we go, we went, started right. We then tapped more into the domain of the left hemisphere and then go back to the right. And then we go back to the left and we come away. The general process that I use is a picture. Then you write a story based on that picture and uh, a story that would be accessible to anyone, not just those in the industry. And so this company did that. And the story actually became, uh, was drawn from the world of baseball. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I say all that when, you know, again, for our gum chomping left hemisphere types, how's that practical? Uh, their sales doubled in the next year. So good. We got that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> then, so you have a picture, then you write a story based on the picture and, uh, you agree on that. And then, um, then you begin to answer the question. So how would we get there? What would we cobble together in terms of infrastructure? That's more of a, a little bit more of the bias of the left hemisphere, but generally they come up with, well, we can't be ambidextrous if we don't have an ambidextrous infrastructure, which is insiders and outsiders. And then there's actually four offices. I draw them from King Arthur's round table, but they're actually drawn from a scripture. Then after that, uh, we you have to complete an assessment that a facilitator. Actually, I went through one up in Boston with another group, um, but it has to be done by an outsider. And it says, first of all, you have to assess: Are you leaders? Uh, and then, as you do, actually, do you have the human resource to do this? And then, um, are there any who tend to bias more the right or the left hemisphere? Then um, after that, you really tap into the domain of left hemisphere about writing roles, responsibilities, rules, regulations, stuff like that, which is always, this is really imperative, uh, especially go to the bank for financing. And then uh, after you're done with all that, you look at all over, you make an assessment and write an honest to God vision statement. Hmm. I mean, I've joked once with, uh, it was a ministry. We'll leave out the name of the rest, but they are real high flying, uh, very expansive, breathtaking vision statement. But when we came to the end, you know, I can remember one or two saying, well, our vision statement ought to be, 
we sort of kind of help a few people on campus. <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing demeaning about that. But here it's here's why and obviously they didn't take that because they said who's <laughs> who's gonna support that? Well, I tend to think you would have greater joy in that ministry if they said, Yeah, I helped that professor a little bit. But I I was gonna give him a biblical worldview on you know, biology and you know, part of why I was brought in was just go, let me get this straight. People you're trying to help have PhDs. What degree do you have? Hmm. I see. I think what we're delving into now for Christians, we're getting into the realm of what Christian Smith called the real gospel is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic is God loves me, wants me to be happy. Therapeutic is I don't want to hurt you in any way. God's a safe place. And deism is God's this sort of this distant notion or concept we're talking about. And you know, that's just not, that's, at first, that's not who God is, and that's not the gospel. And as my wife's been saying, because she's in a program, you know, read through the Bible in a year, she goes, my God, these people are just, you know, basically fall down all the time. There's just so much. There's just, gosh, I mean, back you know, stabbing and this and that. And I said, yeah, first of all, I'm glad I'm not on the pages of the Bible. Hmm. And uh, second, we don't, we, we're just not in touch with, uh, this is, this is the way, this is the way human nature is. And you're not going to get any joy in work if you, if you, if you start with this vision statement, which is almost unattainable. It's not going to be fun. And so given just those circumstances, a vision statement in the end has got to have some sobriety. Enough, and uh, so I think boomers are famous for it's just these high flung, high flying, scrape the heavens. And I've seen it in churches too. And I just go, really? Really? It's, I like, you know, I've always been a fan of you too. And Bono's vision statement there, at least for himself or the band is, peel a little corner of the darkness off the world. Just peel a corner of dark, of, mm. off the darkness. He said, they're going, what do you mean? The guy's worth $770 million. He traveled one of the world's most popular bands. Really have translated the gospel terrifically. Yeah, just peel a little darkness. Peel away a little. <laughs> now, by the way, with artists, those artists, their music does reveal a bias for the right hemisphere because they're doing what uh, C.S. Lewis felt was his chief thing in life to do. It's called transposition. Transposition is to take, here's a biblical truth, we're going to transpose it over here into a, a fantasy story or into music that gets past the watchful dragons. That's He stole that from Cyril of Alexandria, first century. And... Uh, so people listen to him and go, God, I love that music. But at the same time, I know, 1987, Joshua Tree, still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
that that somehow that song all of a sudden i was a u2 fan i said dang i believe in the cross but i still haven't found what i'm looking for <laughs> and that resonated with millions of people but the band would have an entirely different feel it was that we're going to start a movement of passionate devoted followers of jesus christ who are going to uh, spread the gospel throughout the world make disciples of all nations by 1985. <laughs> that's a good, that's a really good, good picture. So, so an ambidextrous, you can't get to an ambidextrous organization if you don't have an ambidextrous plan. You can't get there, you can't get the plan if you don't have the infrastructure to make the plan. So the whole thing folds back to, you get the right outside facilitator they will acquaint you with things like like i did for another company so why do you have these layers of management i don't know just everybody does well but, but why where did they come from we have no idea would you like to know yeah we would that's what happens or if someone says how's this practical it's a funny word you use why would you say practical mm. that's what happens in an ambidextrous organization yeah, or like like what Baki talks about. You know, why would you? Why do you feel like you need to hire someone for HR? Yeah, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Why do you have to have a vacation policy? I love what he says, and it tells you if, if uh, relatives dies in Stockholm, you can leave on Tuesday, but you have to be back by Thursday at four p.m. and blah blah blah. Well, you know, what? Where'd you ever? Where'd you come up with that? <laughs> the the an ambidextrous organization bottom line is more self-aware about the times in which we live and they want to make the world a better place in some way in light of that but if you don't understand the times in which we live which are now post-christian but that's been coming for 200 years and you just unwittingly then adopt post-christian assumptions about people work especially the giveaway is when someone says, okay, I just want to start a Christian company. Well, then that's not the way ambidextrous Christians organizations think Christian is not an adjective. So you're doomed right there. If you want to start a Christian bakery, a Christian financial firm, Yeah. Well, this has been helpful, Mike. Thank you. Um, sure. I do think it is hard to find organizations that do this. Clapham is definitely one of them. If, uh, if listeners are interested, what is the best way to get in contact with you? I mean, I think that's sounds like that's the easiest path to start to, to, to poke you with questions on, okay, I want to, I want to do this thing. I want to start, but I want to lay this infrastructure down. What's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? Yeah. Just shoot me, shoot me an email. I think, it's not on our website. By the way, listeners, we're getting ready to we're going to switch over to a new website, uh, cleaner, simpler. But my uh, email is first initial M, last name Metzger. So it's M M E T Z G E R at clapham.institute.org. Yes, I admit it's way too long <laughs> and it's constantly misspelled by people if you say it over the phone. Clapham Institute, if you don't know how to spell that, just Google. Clap them, clap, clap your hands, C-L-A-P, 
eat a ham. Z, I have some experience in helping people spell this thing. <laughs> ClaphamInstitute.org. So M Metzger. I'd be happy to talk to you.